When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. White House Press Secretary, or the incoming White House Press Secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, did not want to acknowledge uh, that there is chaos in the staff here at the White House. Uh, That seems to be uh, something akin to denying that the sky is blue. It's August now. The story of the Trump presidency every month has been his dishonesty. And to me, that might be the message overall that's been received. We have a 71-year-old president of the United States who has the impulse control of a little child. So she said, well, if you want to see chaos, you can come over and uh, see how my uh, kids uh, play at, at the house. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who's fighting the alarming prevalence of discrimination against white people in America, Donald Trump. I'm Seth Stevenson, a writer here at Slate and your guest host for today's show. From the beginning of July until July 21st, the White House didn't hold a single on-camera press briefing. That all came to an end when Sean Spicer resigned and Anthony Scaramucci came into our lives for 10 mooch-tastic days, and the cameras have basically been on since, even in the wake of the mooch's departure. But it's worth asking, what should the press corps do if and when there's another video blackout? Or an even scarier assault on press freedoms? Some think the briefing video doesn't matter, but I think it's important to have these things on camera. Video is how a lot of people consume news these days, and the White House's lies and evasions and utter inability to answer simple questions in these briefings reaches a much wider swath of the citizenry if there are video snippets that show up on the evening news or in our Facebook feeds. But more than that, turning the cameras off was yet another step in the Trump administration's ongoing effort to bully the press and show it who's boss. Maybe the next step will be kicking the press corps off White House grounds completely, which was actually discussed early on. Or maybe the White House will end briefings altogether taking no questions and speaking only to the Breitbarts and Sinclairs of the world. Could you imagine this administration doing things like that? I might be shocked, but I can't say I'd be particularly surprised. Which is all to say, we need to start thinking about where the press should draw its line in the sand. I'd argue that if the briefing room cameras are turned off again, reporters should defy the order and broadcast the video feed anyway, using their smartphones if necessary. It's a way of saying, you can only push us around for so long. We want the people to see this, so we're going to show it to them. Perhaps West Wing goons will storm out from behind the podium and drag some rogue, non-compliant reporter away. And perhaps a visual like that is just what America needs. On today's show, what is it with Trump and his generals? Retired Marine General John Kelly became White House Chief of Staff this week, only the second military man ever to hold the role. We'll talk about how the Chief of Staff title emigrated from the Army to the White House. And we'll discuss just how important the position was under our previous wildly unstable president, Richard Nixon. I'll be joined by Joshua Zeitz, a historian and a contributing editor at Politico, to find out what we can expect from General Kelly. But first, here are the tweets. I love reading about all of the geniuses who were so instrumental in my election success. Problem is, most don't exist. Hashtag fake news. Make America great again. Highest stock market ever. Best economic numbers in years. Unemployment lowest in seven years. 
15 years. Wages rising. Border secure. SC. No White House chaos. A great day at the White House. Only the fake news media and Trump enemies want me to stop using social media. 110 million people. Only way for me to get the truth out. Unless the Republican senators are total quitters, repeal and replace is not dead. Demand another vote before voting on any other bill. Joining me on the line now is Joshua Zeitz. He's a Politico magazine contributing editor, a historian who's taught at Cambridge and Princeton, and he's the author of Lincoln's Boys, John Hay, John Nikolai, and the War for Lincoln's Image. Welcome, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. So um, let's talk about this article you wrote uh, for Politico magazine about the role of chief of staff. So I didn't realize that the first person ever to have this title was, wasn't until the Eisenhower administration. Tell us a little bit about what kind of men played a chief of staff type role before that. What is the history of this sort of gatekeeper position? For, for about the first 100, 125 years of American history, there was no real White House staff uh, of which to speak. Um, and so presidents from Washington through Lincoln and, and, and later even would hire private secretaries. Now, some of these private secretaries um, were actually fairly prominent um, political or even military uh, men, uh, and others would go on to hold important roles after the fact. For instance, Washington's first uh, private secretary, Tobias Lear, would later serve as an American envoy during the Barbary Wars. I think that probably the the two most famous uh, secretaries to a president from that early American period were John Hay and John Nicolay, who were the uh, secretaries to Abraham Lincoln. And they're famous not for what they did when he was president, but because they, they kept sharp diaries and letters and chronicles of what it was like to work and live in the Lincoln White House. And they later used that material to write a pretty influential biography of Lincoln. But it wasn't really until the late 19th and early 20th century that secretaries emerged to sort of fill a role that you would now identify more as being chief of staff-like. So George Cortelyou, who worked for McKinley and for TR, William Loeb, who worked for Teddy Roosevelt, Joseph Tumulty, a very famous sort of New Jersey political operator who was Wilson's um, private secretary. These were men who came to hold a fair amount of rank and influence with the presidents they served. But it wasn't until 1939 that the kind of West Wing staff uh, model emerged in the way that we know it today. That's when Congress passed the Reorganization Act of 1939. They created a permanent White House staff. They created something called the Executive Office of the President, which by the 1960s included uh, things like the Bureau of the Budget, the National Security Council, the Council of Economic Advisors, the Office of Emergency Planning. And so People who held that top staff job in the late 30s and 40s and into the early 50s actually started to wield a lot of power. But the first person ever to hold the chief of staff title was Sherman Adams, who held that title for six years under Dwight Eisenhower. Now, so these these guys, these are people of great capability. These aren't mere receptionists. But at the same time, there is this real almost 
physical thing they have in terms of of arbiting access to the president. When you talk about John Nicolay, he's he's the bulldog in the anteroom, and and there's this quote about uh, the impatient demands of the gathering, growing crowd of applicants, which obstructs passage, hall, and anteroom at the White House. We, you know, we, there was a story I think in Axios the other day about how John Kelly literally closed the door of the Oval Office, whereas before it had been open. So this 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 is a there's an almost idea of this like physical blocking of access to the president that the chief of staff role has. That's that's exactly right. I mean, under under Lincoln, Nikolai and Hay weren't doing policy formation, but he used them uh, as personal envoys to the military, particularly in the case of Hay. Nikolai was essentially the gatekeeper, so no piece of paper and no person came before Lincoln unless Nikolai okayed it. That required a tremendous amount of political acumen and savvy. It also required a lot of grit. Um, at one point, Hay and Nikolai quite literally built or partitioned a, a hallway near the president's office so that there could be a private corridor that would allow Lincoln to get to and from his private residence without having to go past all of the, the sort of petitioners and congressmen and journalists who were waiting, trying to get an audience with him. So you enjoyed a lot of power in this role. You had to be very politically savvy. But it was largely an execution role. But 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 you are right in that these were men who, and they were always men, they were men who essentially controlled all access to the president, not just physically, but also what information flowed to the president. So even 100, 150 years ago, these positions were very powerful. So let's talk about the first person to actually hold the title chief of staff. This is Sherman Adams under Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, I guess, borrowed the term from the military, which is a little ironic given our current uh, the current general in the role. So uh, Sherman Adams, you, you open your piece with the joke uh, that people used to make in the 1950s. What if Adams should die and Eisenhower becomes president of the United States? Was, was Adams really that important? Uh, he was. I mean, he was really the first person to, to staff this position in a kind of very public-facing way. Most of the other private secretaries, um, you know, who held the job or, or assistants to the president were relatively anonymous. Um, I mean, they were known to the political set, but they certainly didn't pop up in the newspapers as often. I mean, Adams was a kind of grim, very typical kind of New England, flinty, New Hampshire, former governor, former congressman, you know, that he was known as the abominable no man. I mean, he really controlled uh, access to Eisenhower and he did it with a kind of iron, you know, iron fist. Um, every decision flowed through him. Every piece of paper went past him. And, you know, he, he rankled a lot of uh, Eisenhower's supporters in Congress. He, he didn't get along very well with uh, Vice President Nixon. But anytime people would tell Eisenhower to sack him, he would simply say, I need him. Um, and he was a very tough enforcer. And as you say, he held this military-type title of chief of staff. It was a system that Eisenhower had been quite familiar with, you know, during his army career. Right. So the the chief of staff title went dormant for a couple of administrations, and it didn't come back until the Nixon administration, where he named Bob Haldeman his, his chief of staff. And this was a president who perhaps was in need of, of reining in in a way that previous presidents had been. You talk about the disorder in, in the White House. Haldeman wrote in his memoirs that Nixon was a man who needed to be protected from himself and from his countless vindictive orders, which could be unethical or patently illegal. Um, how did the chief of staff position work under Nixon? So Haldeman was extremely powerful. Um, he had essentially the same free reign to control the White House staff that um, that Sherman Adams had under Eisenhower. And remember that by the by the you know by the early 1970s, the executive branch of the government had grown enormously, both in power and size. Um, you know, we think about the imperial presidency. It's it's a fairly recent innovation, but it, you know the the federal state expanded 
enormously during the Great Depression, obviously, uh, during World War II, during the Cold War era. And so as the state, you know, the federal state grew, the executive branch grew, both in power and size, the role of chief of staff became much more powerful. So it wasn't merely that uh, Haldeman was controlling access to the president or the president's agenda. He also had, you know, the ability, probably the first chief of staff have the open ability to get on the phone with cabinet officials and, and deliver orders from the West Wing. Um, you know, it was every bit as powerful as uh, today's chief of staff is um, if, if, if it's, you know, if the job is filled by somebody who has the president's confidence. Now, that having been said, Nixon, as you, as you pointed out, had special need of uh, a strong chief of staff. Um, Haldeman, you know, would later call him the weirdest man ever to serve as president or occupy the West Wing. Uh, he was a, um, you know, in many, in many cases, an engaged president, certainly when it came to foreign policy, but he was also something of a loner. He used to spend hours at a time at a hideaway office in the old executive office building. He would fixate on the strangest details like menus at state dinners uh, or what uniforms the White House guards should wear. So he, he was an odd man. Not this is ringing some current. bells, by the way, some of these yes, that's right. qualities. He's not unlike uh, the current president who may, in fact, uh, dethrone him for the weirdest president title. But, you know, Haldeman had to uh, had to sort of keep Nixon from from sort of giving into his worst demons and also keep him focused or at least work around his sort of strange tendencies. Um, and this became more the case, you know, as Nixon into his second term began drinking heavily, began using prescription pills, was, you know, deeply distraught over Watergate. That would become less Haldeman's problem after he was uh, fired in mid-1973. But it was something he had to start, you know, contending with early on. Right. And so Haldeman ends up being the first and only presidential chief of staff so far to serve any time in prison. Although we should note that Sherman Adams, the first chief of staff under Eisenhower, did have to resign in disgrace after he accepted gifts, including a vacuna coat from a textile right. manufacturer. Um, <laughs> but when, when Haldeman was gone, so uh, the, the job under Nixon it went to Al Haig. This is an active duty four-star army general. You know, some people called him the 37 and a half president of the United States because of the amount of power he was wielding, particularly in the final days of the Nixon administration. Tell us about Al Haig's role um, in, in those days and, and whether there were concerns at the time uh, over having an active duty military general um, serve that close to the seat of power. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, I, I poked around. I mean, it raised eyebrows that an active duty general should should serve as chief of staff. Um but I think there is a difference between the 19, early 1970s, 1973, and today. You still had most members of Congress, most journalists, uh, most people in public life, if they were men, had probably done military service, and many of them were World War II and, and um, Korean War vets. So that having been said, it was unusual. He was the only military personnel full stop ever to serve in that role. And he was there from mid-1973 through about the first month of Gerald Ford's term. Uh, into uh, 1974. And, you know, he, he was extraordinarily powerful, but he was also presiding over a White House staff that was in complete turmoil. Several members of the senior staff had had to resign because of Watergate. They were facing indictment. Former attorney general was in, facing indictment. Uh, Haig had to keep uh, the, the ship steady as much as possible um, in those last days when the Nixon administration was unraveling, when even the vice president, Spiro Agnew, was on his way out and on his way toward an indictment as well. 
he was in many ways an you know an enabler of Nixon's worst tendencies. He, upon learning of the existence of the secret Oval Office tapes, suggested that Nixon destroy them, which obviously would have been a criminal act. In fact, discussing it is arguably a criminal act. It's conspiracy to obstruct justice. And he was also the one who um, ordered the acting attorney general to fire the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, uh, during the Saturday Night Massacre. So by no means was Haig a, uh, you know, an upstanding uh, public servant. However, in those last months and certainly those last weeks, as Nixon's behavior grew increasingly erratic and, and troublingly so, Haig, along with Henry Kissinger, was really the sort of the White House staff member who who got the president in a frame of mind where he understood resignation was effectively his only choice. And it was also Haig who worked with Gerald Ford to get him ready, both you know from a logistical standpoint, but also mentally ready to assume the presidency. So it's for that reason that Kissinger would later say that um, you know that Haig was effectively the glue that kept the government together in those last days, which is something you know an opinion that uh, other people shared. I, I think uh, you know what Kissinger said was that by sheer willpower, dedication, and self-discipline, he held the government together. We know that, that Trump loves to surround himself with generals. Was that at all a concern in the, in the Nixon era that Nixon was going to turn this into a sort of um, semi-military operation? No, that's a good question. I, I don't think that was a concern because um, remember that, that Nixon didn't do what Trump has done, which is to say appoint generals and former generals and, and former former military officers writ large to a number of cabinet or sub-cabinet posts. So I think that this was something that was unique. You know, it's unique to Trump. It just, it didn't, Haig was, he was the only general who held a prominent White House, West Wing, or administration role at the time. So I think that the precedent is probably a little different. Too many generals, and it starts to look a little uncomfortably like a junta. It is an interesting thing. I, uh, if, if you've ever seen the movie Seven Days in May back in the you know, early 1960s, um, in which you know a president who had signed a nuclear non-proliferation treaty or a disarmament treaty suddenly finds that um, he's the subject of a coup by you know several of his joint chiefs of staff, we're in this weird position right now where I think particularly people on the left are having a hard time knowing whether they're nervous about having so many generals running around the West Wing or whether they're happy that they're there because in some respects they're adults who might be able to to balance out the president or at least check him. Um, and and it's, a, it's a strange position to have to be in. You know, I think it, it flips the script a bit. One of the most fascinating things I thought, though, just historic from a historical perspective, was when the president went on Twitter to announce his that he was going to ban transgendered uh, people from serving in the armed services, the Joint Chiefs of Staff quickly came out and essentially said, well, until, until we see an order, nothing changes and we, respe- you know, we treat everyone with respect. Now, technically, that's a very correct response in that you know, the president had not officially ordered them to do anything. And they were essentially saying that Twitter is not a, you know, is not a mechanism by which you would do that. But you did see, in some other respects, the generals pushing back. It was a sort of extraordinary display of independence. And so you know, Trump's love of the generals may end up knowing some limits if if it, if it turns out that the military, you know, whether active duty or in the form of former military men, if it turns out the military is the one institution that's not responsive to his constant sort of pyrotechnics. And now we have, uh, again, an unelected general. This time he's retired on John Kelly is a, is a retired Marine general. But again, he's he is in, you know, maybe de facto the number two in America right now, mm-hmm. given the way the Trump Oval Office seems to work. What kind of concern should we be that 
John Kelly is, in fact, the 45th and a half president of the United States. What what um, what are the dangers of having a, a military person in that position? I um I mean, I'm probably a, a little less concerned about that point of fact than a lot of my um, probably a lot of my peers. I don't think that military service should preclude someone from having a civilian political or government career on the contrary. Right. I mean, it's a it's an important perspective. So it could very well be a strength. I, I would probably be averse to having an active duty military officer in that role. Um, that having been said, there are all sorts of concerns that I think it does raise. First of all, you know, Kelly does not have any political experience and certainly has no domestic policy experience. He doesn't understand Congress. Um, he doesn't understand, as far as I, I can tell, the kind of administrative and institutional norms, many of which the Trump administration is trampling over. So it's not clear to me that he has any any knowledge of or just inherent respect for Department of Justice institutions and practices that are that are being challenged and sort of stretched in this in this period. And I think you know, in as much as he is a career military man, I don't know that he'll take easily to the type of consensus building um, and respect for you know the three co-equal co-equal branches of government that a strong chief of staff must have. I'm not suggesting that there's anything about him that doesn't doesn't accept these norms, but um, but he has no you know he has no prior experience navigating them. So uh, you know I'm not sure that this solves the problem for Trump, but clearly Trump believes that generals and military men somehow have the ability to fix problems overnight. Well, Kelly's first act was to fire uh, to the end of the amateur hour, or I guess amateur 11 days that was the Anthony Scaramucci era, um, which maybe has brought at least some order or some, some sense yep. of dignity to the Oval <laughs> Office. But it, we'll see, you know, how did you feel about that move? It's a pretty good start. Um, I don't know how he couldn't have done it. Uh, Scaramucci, his brief and sort of storied tenure uh, was a fascinating kind of car crash in real time. I think the real question is, will he fill that same role that, and will he successfully fill the role that John Nicolay played for Lincoln or that Sherman Adams played for Ike? Will he be able to restrict access? Will he be able to restrict even even the president's family members from having walk-in privileges in the Oval Office? You know, he's never going to be able to restrict Jared Kushner and Ivanka from speaking with, with the president off hours in the residence because, you know, it's his kids. But there is something to be said for imposing real traffic rules, right, uh, within the West Wing, um, and also for demanding that everybody report into him. So we'll see whether that works. At the end of the day, though, you, you can only be as good of a chief of staff as your staff. And the Trump White House is, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, like I'm an historian, but I also live in this country and read the news. I mean, it's the, it's the most incredible freak show of non-talented and unprepared individuals in the history of the country, full stop. I've been talking to Joshua Zeitz. He's a contributing editor at Politico, and he has a new book coming out in February. It's called Building the Great Society Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House. Thanks for joining me, Josh. Thank you. And that's the show for today. But before we take off, are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? The whole Trumpcast team, Jacob Weisberg, Jamel Bowie, and Virginia Heffernan are on there, and it's the best way to keep up with everything going on around the show. Follow us at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. Also, are you listening to Slate Plus's Game of Thrones podcast? Every Monday morning, June Thomas, Isaac Butler, and me dissect every twist, turn, and power play for the Iron Throne. Who will make it through winter? Listen to the show at slate.com slash Game of Thrones. 
Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and John DiDomenico is, as always, the voice of Donald Trump. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast. There's been a lot made of the fact that I said I called the Boy Scouts. I did call the Boy Scouts. I called them. I called them a great group of kids who are very, very loyal. The press, the press, the fake media made it sound like I called the executive. I didn't call them. I didn't call them. I called the boys, tremendous boys, by the way, amazing boys. I called them great kids, very loyal. It wasn't a phone call. I never said the word phone. I never said phone. I said, I called Totally different. Fake news out of control.